If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 547. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, buy a class or 20. You can keep this podcast free of charge by doing that. And if you're on my email list, you're getting the coupons for Black Friday. If this is November of 2021 when you're getting this show, I've already got Black Friday out there. Get those coupons. Get the classes for a discount. It's a great gift. Never out of stock. Also, purchase a book of mine, right? You can get those anywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Anywhere books are sold online, you can buy any of my books. Those also make great gifts. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my uh, name, get my autograph on a book plate if you want my autograph on a book. You can also throw a few pennies my way there if you want to help help keep the show free of charge. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woodsby Classroom, another great website where I teach with Tom and a whole lot of other great instructors. So you've got all kinds of ways to support the show financially. But you painlessly, you can just share it around on social media. You can rate it wherever you get your podcasts. That's a painless way to do it. No, no, no money required, and you can help grow the audience that way. I want to talk about an, uh, an event here. Uh, and it's based on a book that I highly recommend, and I'm going to hold the book up if you're watching this on YouTube, Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons by Ward Wilson. That is an interesting book. And there was an article that I saw that came through. It was actually published in 2013. Um, and it was on the surrender of Japan in World War II. That's an interesting topic to me. If you look at the use of nuclear weapons and you talk about their importance strategically, if you look at the conventional wisdom, this was essentially formed by a man named Bernard Brody. And Brody's uh, wife was Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody was a historian. Fawn Brody wrote um, uh, An Intimate History of the Founders, I think the title of it was. But anyways... It was about all of their salacious thoughts and all these things they did, you know, what kind of weird stuff they had going on. But Fawn Brody was into this psychoanalysis history. She liked to put the founders on the proverbial couch, right, and then look at them and psychoanalyze them. It was more of a psychological history than anything else. You know, this is being done now with Robert E. Lee, for example, with people like Pryor's book, Reading the Man, where she essentially says that uh, Lee had these very strange habits of rubbing feet and things like that. I mean, this is, this is what they try to do with these people. They're just strange people. The founders were all strange people. So that psychoanalysis is an interesting part of what we do now or what historians are confronted with. Uh, and we try to get into, well, let's get to the little nitty-gritty. What are these, what are these really strange uh, you know, kind of 
uh, things, habits these people had that can make them seem a little abnormal. Or maybe normal, I don't know. I mean, modern society, what is abnormal and normal anymore is how we're defining these things. You can't even say something's abnormal anymore. But her husband, her husband, Bernard Brody, was a nuclear uh, strategist, right? I mean, he his primary belief was that nuclear weapons were a form of deterrence. That nuclear weapons, the more you had, the more nuclear weapons you had in your arsenal, the, the less likely a foreign power was to attack you. And so we base our understanding of American foreign policy, particularly during the Cold War, on this. This idea that we have to have more and more nuclear weapons. There's an arms race. The Soviet Union is building all these nuclear bombs. We're building all these nuclear bombs. And, of course, that's going to create tension. Now, you could say, if you want to look at it and say, well, we never had a war between the Soviet Union because we had all these nuclear weapons. And who's going to sit there and fight each other when we're just going to start dropping nuclear bombs on each other? I mean, you have, in 1961, the Soviet Union tests the Tsar Obama, which the destructive power of that weapon was so fascinating. I mean, I'm still fascinated by that particular weapon. It detonated two miles above the surface, and it, I mean, the, the crater was massive. The amount of destruction was massive. Now, in this book by Ward Wilson, he challenges this idea of destruction based on size of the weapon. Um, when he talks about yield and other things. It's quite interesting how he gets into that. I, I recommend this book. It challenges many things, and that's always fun to be challenged. Okay, I'll, I'll just say that. But he is correct that most nuclear weapons were smaller and smaller. In fact, the idea was to have uh, more bang for the buck, meaning you could have nuclear weapons on just about anything, including the nuclear cannon, right? Or 220 millimeter howitzer that could fire off a nuclear warhead that was the same size that was dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. You could also have aircraft deliverable weapons. You could have nuclear weapons fired out of tanks. You could also have suitcase bombs, right? I mean, all these things that we were developing in the Cold War that, of course, everyone's worried about now, and rightfully so, because you have these small tactical nuclear weapons that are kind of floating out there. If you can make really small, the really small weapons like this, that's dangerous. That's dangerous to society. These weapons are dangerous. And the primary target is always civilians. We've seen it since they were first used. But this piece I'm focusing attention on is today, the title of it is, The Bomb Didn't Beat Japan, Stalin Did. Now, this is a long piece. And if you've ever seen any photos, of course, of Hiroshima after the atomic weapon was dropped on Hiroshima, devastation is complete. I mean, it's horrible. Same thing with Nagasaki. You've got 300,000 casualties in those two atomic weapon strikes. Horrible stuff. But this piece also brings up something interesting, and that is that the United States, for months before this, had engaged in an incendiary operation, firebombing cities around Japan. There was no air resistance to the United States at this point. I mean, this is something people don't realize, but by the time the by by the time we get to the end of 1945 or middle of 1945, the Japanese Air Force was virtually gone. Their Navy had already been obliterated. Their Air Force was virtually gone. They had no air resistance. They had no naval resistance. The United States didn't. So, they, yes, they were fighting, island hopping, 
Island to Island, which was tough, tough fighting. And of course, the Japanese treatment of POWs was horrible. I never forget, I, I showed a video on uh, the bomb at Hiroshima, and there was a, a Marine they were interviewing there who was put in a POW camp. And his response to the nuclear strike was, the only regret I have is that we didn't drop 10 of them on Japan, right? I mean, uh, you know, having one or two wasn't enough. We needed 10. And of course, that's punitive. The, the idea is that we're just going to punish Japan. Well, who was getting attacked in all these incendiary uh, attacks? You know, it was civilians, right? The atomic weapon was civilians. We know that there were some industrial targets in these cities, but it was actually argued, don't drop the bombs on cities. Drop them on an uninhabited island somewhere and let people know what we've got. And maybe they'll surrender. But Wilson's position is that it wasn't the bomb. It wasn't the bomb, but the threat of Soviet invasion that ended J Japanese military resistance. Now, this gets into the in a new history of World War II. Now, again, this piece is, a, is about eight years old. And you've been seeing some of this over time. What is the real reason the Japanese surrendered? Was it the bombs? Was it because we dropped a bomb on Hiroshima and we dropped a bomb on Nagasaki? Or was it because of something else? We know the Soviet Union, and he gets into this in the piece. And I'm, I, I'm not going to read a lot of this because it's, it's, a, it's a long piece, again. But he gets into this later in the piece and says, look... There was a, a, a non-aggression pact signed between the Japanese and the Soviet Union in 1941, about the same time Hitler did it, right? So the Japanese do. That expired in five years. That expired in 1946, and we're getting close to 1946. So what would have happened had the Soviet Union, which was supposedly neutral, there were only there were miles off the coast of Japan. The, the United States was still working their way towards Japan. What would have happened? had the Soviet Union invaded Japan. And I think this is a real case for the United States as well. You see, the United States was also aware the Soviet Union could invade Japan. They knew it. Which is one of the reasons why there's a speculation the United States dropped the bombs on Japan. Because they wanted to show the Soviets, not the Japanese. The Japanese almost became irrelevant in this particular situation. This is where the Cold War becomes important. The Japanese were almost irrelevant. The Japanese were looking to surrender. They wanted conditional surrender, not unconditional surrender. And of course, uh, the terms that were finally agreed to were not necessarily the unconditional surrender the Allies demanded or before they dropped the bombs. Uh, they were willing to agree to a conditional surrender. Uh, but... Um, not maybe what the Japanese wanted, but it wasn't what the United States was demanding before they dropped the bombs. That calls into question, why drop the second bomb? That one was virtually unnecessary, unless you look at the greater geopolitical situation here, which was, of course, the Soviet Union. Harry Truman called the bombs the big stuff, right? He wanted to show that Soviets wanted to show Stalin. We weren't afraid to use the big stuff. We only had two of them. The Soviets had not developed nuclear weapons yet. They knew what they were. Even uh, Wilson points out the Japanese knew what they were. Everyone knew what they were. The Soviets weren't caught completely off guard here. They knew what was going on. This was a, a well-known secret, what was happening here. 
They didn't know how many we had. The Soviets were behind the United States in developing nuclear weapons. But they certainly knew what they were. So this is interesting because I mean, he's challenging conventional wisdom here. So let me start with the first part of this. He says, The U.S. use of nuclear weapons against Japan during World War II has long been a subject of emotional debate. And I think this is true. This is an emotional question for a lot of people, particularly if you're from Japan or your family's from Japan. The war itself and the attack on civilian populations, is that a war crime? I mean, this is something that, you know, if, if the situation was reversed and we were talking about the Japanese firebombing Los Angeles, for example, or uh, the Japanese firebombing Anchorage, if they had had access to those areas, or firebombing uh, American uh, civilians in Hawaii, right? Would that, be, would that have been a war crime? If the, if the situation was reversed and the United States had suffered this, these type of incendiary devices or a nuclear attack on one of our cities, would we have considered that a war crime? It's a big question. It's not one that's easy to answer because we don't want to say, well, gosh, you know, our, our, our United States is guilty of war crimes. But could it be considered a war crime? So it is an emotional issue. We want to be in the right in the United States. It was justified. This is justified use of nuclear weapons. It's justified use of incendiary devices. It's justified use of these things because we want to win the war. And we want to save a million American lives. It's always justified that way because if we had to invade Japan... It would have cost a million soldiers, a million Americans, to bring Japan down. However, Jap Japan was already trying to surrender, <laughs> right? So would it really have cost that if the United States was really willing to negotiate at that point? Initially, few questioned President Truman's decision to drop two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in 1965, historian Gar Alperwitz argued that although the bombs did force an immediate end to the war, Japan's leaders had wanted to surrender anyway and likely would have done so before the American invasion planned for November 1st. Their use was, therefore, unnecessary. Obviously, if the bombings weren't necessary to win the war, then bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki was wrong. In the years since, many others have joined the fray, some echoing Alperwitz and denouncing the bombings, others rejoining, the hotly, rejoining hotly that the bombings were moral necessary and life-saving. So, I mean, this is an emotional debate. We're talking about lives for a large number of people, either Americans or Japanese in this particular case. We don't know which one because we know what happened. You can only speculate what would have happened had something else gone on. We don't know how many lives would have been lost, how many lives would have been saved. We don't know these things because these things never happened. It's one of those great historical inferences. What if? What if the United States had not dropped the bombs? Well, would the Japanese have surrendered before November 1st? Would uh, the Americans have been forced to invade November 1st? Would we have lost a million American lives? We don't know. So the argument here really is, well, if it was even a chance, we should have done this. Okay. I mean, this is something that you kind of have to make a call if that's what you're willing to do. Both schools of thought, however, assume that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with new, more powerful weapons did coerce Japan into surrendering on August 9th. They failed to question the utility of the bombings in the first place, to ask, in essence, did it work? The orthodox view is that, yes, of course it worked. The United States bombed Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th, and the Japanese finally succumbed to the threat of further nuclear bombardment and surrendered. The support for this narrative runs deep. 
But there are major problems with it, and taken together, they significantly undermine the traditional interpretation of the Japanese surrender. So this is the issue, right? And he begins with the timing. He says the first problem with the traditional interpretation is timing, and it is a serious problem. The traditional interpretation has a simple timeline. The U.S. Army Air Force dropped bombs Hiroshima with a nuclear weapon on August 6th. Three days later, they bombed Nagasaki with another. And on the next day, the Japanese signaled their intention to surrender. One can hardly blame American newspapers for running headlines like Peace in the Pacific. Our bomb did it. I mean, again, it makes sense. But he points out, wait a second here. He says, viewed from the Japanese perspective, the most important day in this, that second week of August, August wasn't August 6th, but August 9th. That was the day the Supreme Council met for the first time in the war to discuss unconditional surrender. The Supreme Council was a group of six top members of the government, a sort of inner cabinet that effectively ruled Japan in 1945. Japan's leaders had not seriously considered surrendering prior to that day. Unconditional surrender, what the Allies were demanding, was a bitter pill to swallow. The United States and Great Britain were already convening war crimes trials in Europe. What if they decided to put the emperor, who was believed to be divine, on trial? What if they got rid of the emperor and changed the form of government entirely? Even though the situation was bad in the summer of 1945, the leaders of Japan were not willing to consider giving up their traditions, their beliefs, or their way of life. Until August 9th. What could have happened that caused them to so suddenly and decisively change their minds? What made them sit down to seriously discuss surrender for the first time after 14 years of war? Wilson says it could not have been Nagasaki. The bombing of Nagasaki occurred in the late morning of August 9th, after the Supreme Council had already begun meeting to discuss surrender. And word of the bombing only reached Japan's leaders in the early afternoon, after the meeting of the Supreme Council had been adjourned in deadlock and the full cabinet had been called to take up the decision. Discussion, I'm sorry. Based on timing alone, Nagasaki couldn't and can't have been what motivated them. Hiroshima isn't a very good candidate either. It came 74 hours, more than three days earlier. What kind of crisis takes three days to unfold, Wilson asks. The hallmark of a crisis is a sense of impending disaster and the overwhelming desire to take action now. How could Japan's leaders have felt that Hiroshima touched off a crisis and yet not met to talk about the problem for three days? So then he gives some examples of, of uh, American response to crises, whether it's Truman or Kennedy or McClellan. He says, look, there's no way this was a crisis. These bombs actually cause us. He says that it just can't be the case. He says, look, one other fact about timing creates a striking problem. On August 8th, Foreign Minister Togo went to Premier Suzuki and asked that the Supreme Council be convened to discuss the bombing of Hiroshima, but its members declined. So the crisis didn't grow day by day until it finally burst into full bloom on August 9th. Any explanation of the actions of Japan's leaders that relies on the shock of the bombings of Hiroshima has to account for the fact that they considered a meeting to discuss the bombing on August 8th, made a judgment that it was too unimportant, and then suddenly decided to meet to discuss surrender the very next day. Either they succumbed to some sort of group schizophrenia, or some other event was the real motivation to discuss surrender. So this is the important thing. And then he talks about scale here. And this is where he gets into the fact that these bombs were just one part of a massive bombing campaign against Japan. He says, in the summer of 1945, 
the U.S. Army Air Force carried out one of the most intensive campaigns of city destruction in the history of the world. 68 cities in Japan were attacked, and all of them were either partially or completely destroyed. An estimated 1.7 million people were made homeless, 300,000 were killed, and 750,000 were wounded. 66 of these raids were carried out with conventional bombs, two with atomic bombs. The destruction caused by conventional attacks was huge. Night after night, all summer long, cities would go up in smoke. In the midst of this cascade of destruction, it would not be surprising if this or that individual attack failed to make much of an impression, even if it was carried out with a remarkable new type of weapon. A B-29 bomber flying from one of the Mariana Islands could carry, depending on the location and target of the, and the altitude of the attack, somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 pounds of bombs. The typical raid consisted of 500 bombers. This means that the typical conventional raid was dropping 4 to 5 kilotons of bombs on each city. So 5 kilotons of bombs. Now, the Hiroshima bomb, as he points out, was a 20 kiloton weapon, or 16 and a half. Nagasaki was 20. So it's not that much bigger. It was one bomb that led to 16 and a half kilotons compared to 5, but he says the first of these conventional attacks, a night attack on Tokyo on March 9th to 10th, remains the single most destructive attack on a city in the history of war. Something like 16 square miles of the city were burned out. An estimated 120,000 Japanese civilians lost their lives, the single highest death toll of any bombing attack on a city. This is the thing that we don't realize about this. This is where Wilson says in his book, look, I mean, nuclear weapons, yeah, they're bad, but we've got conventional weapons that can do some of this stuff too, and we were doing it. And I think this is an interesting part of this. So he says, look, Hiroshima can't really be it. Nagasaki can't really be it. Now, the sheer destruction is, I mean, it's its all inspiring for us to look at this and say, wow, one bomb did this? And that's horrible, and you have the radiation and all those other things with it, but... When you look at everything else that's going on, was this really the whole thing? He says, in the three weeks prior to Hiroshima, 26 cities were attacked by the U.S. Army Air Force. Of these, eight, or almost a third, were as completely or more completely destroyed than Hiroshima. The fact that Japan had 68 cities destroyed in the summer of 1945 poses a serious challenge for people who want to make the bombing of Hiroshima the cause of Japan's surrender. The question is, if they surrendered because the city was destroyed, why didn't they surrender when those other 66 cities were destroyed? Very good question. And so he's setting this up, right? He's setting up for the real issue, which is going to be the Soviet Union. He says that the Japanese were not concerned with city bombing in general or the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in particular. What were they concerned with? The answer is simple. The Soviet Union. Soviet invasion of Japan. So that became the issue. Now, again, it was also the issue for the United States. I set this up by saying, look, here's the real problem. The Soviet Union is playing a role in all of this. It's playing a role for Japan because Japan knows the Soviet Union can be in Japan within 10 days. He points that out. Look, they could launch an invasion and be in Japan in 10 days and they don't want to be invaded by the Soviet Union. On the other hand, the United States also knows the Soviet Union can be in Japan in 10 days. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do to deter, supposedly, the Soviet Union from doing anything here? We're going to drop bombs on Japan. And we're going to say, hey, if you invade Japan, if you cross this line, we're going to drop these bombs on you. Right? Because at this point, Truman... 
has got a pretty delicate situation with the Soviet Union. The Soviets were becoming more belligerent. They were more aggressive. Uh, what Roosevelt and Churchill wanted out of, of Stalin early in the discussions of peace, uh, the United States and the British were not getting out of the Soviets at this point because both Churchill and Roosevelt were not there anymore. Also, you have to remember that Churchill and Roosevelt were appeasing Stalin. They were both appeasing Stalin. This is one of the great what-ifs again of World War II. What if, the, what if Roosevelt and Churchill, what if the United States and the British had not appeased Stalin? What if they had turned their attention to Stalin and gotten rid of that totalitarian thug? Then we wouldn't even have had the Cold War. We wouldn't have had all the other wars, right? No Vietnam War, no Korean War. Now, of course, this puts a lot of pressure on the American population over the 1940s. To go and try to take out the Soviet Union would have been near impossible, I think. But what if, this is Pat Buchanan's position, what if the United States had allowed the, the Germans just to simply continue to turn on the Soviets and they not gotten involved? What if they had allowed this to happen? Would those two powers, the Nazis and the, these totalitarian powers, these leftist totalitarian powers, what if they had simply slugged it out themselves and the United States stays out of it? Would that have not have been better for the world, ultimately, to have that happen? It's a, I mean, that's a, another interesting thesis as well. So the Soviet Union is going to get involved. The Japanese say, uh-oh, we don't want that. So we're going to try to negotiate for surrender. I mean, they had actually been approaching the Soviet Union for months before, or at least weeks, before the bombs were dropped trying to get surrender. And again, this is where you get to this idea, were both bombs necessary? Was it necessary to bomb both Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Even if you say the bombs worked, was it necessary to bomb Nagasaki? Because the Japanese were already trying to surrender. They had already started the process. They were already thinking about it. So the bomb, I mean, you can say, well, the bomb worked. It, we dropped them. They surrendered. And this is the conventional way to teach this, this time period. I mean, look, everybody that teaches history has done it this way, You're including yours truly. We've all done it this way. Well, we have, a, we have these bombs. They get dropped. And the war's over. VJ Day, the Japanese surrender. The bombs worked. But the Japanese were already trying to surrender long before this, and would they even have surrendered in August without the bombs? Potentially. The United States were dropping a lot of bombs on Japan. They were going to keep dropping a lot of bombs on Japan. The Japanese couldn't resist anymore. It was over. It was over. Now, they still had about 4 million men in arms, and maybe a little over a million that were protecting Japan. Wilson brings this up. But could they have sustained the war? Probably not. It would have been over. It would have been over. So again, as someone who likes military history, it was one of my one of my fields in, in graduate school. I like military history; it's interesting, and I like this part of it the the strategic part of it, the bigger picture part of it, the diplomacy slash strategy behind these things. I've always enjoyed that part of history. Uh, I find this argument to be fascinating, and I think in many ways more accurate than not. It's easy to see cause and effect. It's easy to say, well, the bomb dropped, and so therefore that ended the war. But we know that's not necessarily what happened. And the Soviet Union has to be part of this discussion. If it's not, you're missing the bigger picture of what's going on. The Cold War had already started. It had already started before this. 
And of course, the, the story is that Truman meets with Stalin and passes him a note that we've got these nuclear weapons. And Stalin doesn't even react to it, really. He's like, okay. Because he probably knew, and because, well, they already knew about nuclear weapons. So, I mean, not scared at all of this. But the idea was that if we use them, maybe the Soviets will be scared off, and we can, we can keep them out of Asia. We can keep them out of places that we don't want them. Again, the Cold War was already in full swing by the time these bombs were dropped in 1945. That's something that always needs to be brought up. The Cold War is a byproduct of World War II, World War I. In reality, the French Revolution unleashes all this stuff. And so the French Revolution is the, cata- it's the turning point. It's the cataclysmic event in European society. And of course, everything in the world is going to be affected by it, which I find to be fascinating too. I get into all that, by the way, at McLeanahan Academy in my U.S. History Survey courses. And coming in 2022, I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to do yet, but you might see a Western SIP course, maybe something where I get into some European history, some other things. But uh, regardless, get those classes at McLeanahan Academy for a discount for my Black Friday sales. You want to get on them. And uh, you know, it's a great time to buy McLeanahan Academy. It's, in fact the last time you're going to see a 30% discount coupon. It's the last time I'm offering it ever. You'll never see a discount like that again. So you got to be on the email list. Get on the email list. Get McClanahan Academy. Get that 30% discount coupon and enjoy those classes. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 